My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Now switching cores after performing at the very highest level in fishing isn't unheard of, but it is unusual, particularly when the switch is made from fresh water to salt water. And linking up with me here today is an angler who's done just that. Cornish fly fishing specialist Chris Ogborn, winner of numerous national and international medals wearing the colours of England, who now specialises in teaching and guiding saltwater fly fishing around his native West Country. So what's all that about? Well, kick off where it all started really. I mean, in terms of the competition scene, that goes way back to 1981, where I first won the English National. It was the first year I ever actually went into competition fishing. And it was one of those sort of wonderful first years really, because uh, having gone through the eliminators and the qualifiers and all the rest of it, I ended up winning the National in my very first year of competition. So needless to say, I was pretty much hooked almost straight away. I then subsequently fished for England for 25 years, which I'm very proud of. And until relatively recently, I actually held the, the record number of caps for England, uh, 27 appearances. <laughs> That's home internationals and then world championships. The world championships is the pinnacle of the whole thing, really. And I got into the England world team in 1987. And uh, apart from one year on business when it was impossible, I represented England from 1987 right through to 2002 on the world championship stage. Initially as a competitor, latterly as the manager, won a whole hatful of medals. We had four gold world championship team medals. Um, I had a individual silver, individual bronze, and a whole lot of good placings. So it was a great thing, and I loved it. And at the time, I felt that it was good for the sport. I felt that it actually promoted the things that were right in the sport. The light line philosophy was coming in in those early years, and I was pioneering small nymphs when everybody else was chucking out big flies. And basically, I wanted to prove that it could work. And the best way of doing that was on the competition circuit. And you could share your ideas in those days very easily. I used to write very, very frequently for Trout and Salmon, Trout Fisherman Magazine, Fly Fishing, Fly Tying, pretty much on a monthly basis. But I got kind of fed up with that because the the editorial style then was, if you haven't done it for the last two years, they'd churn it out with a different title on it. And you'd rehash the same old stuff over and over again. And I, I didn't really like doing that. I only write articles these days if I've really got something worthwhile to say. So I'm doing less journalism than I was doing in those days. And really the turning point was when my dad died, which was 10 years ago. And he always knew, he had a love of the, the deep west country down here in Cornwall. And he basically said to me just before he went, and bearing in mind that he was my fishing partner, my best mate, my guide, my mentor. He was pretty much the most important person ever in my life, really. And just before he went, he just said, why hang about, Chris? Why don't you just get rid of the stuff you don't enjoy in your business life, promote the stuff that you do, and get the hell out of it, the rat race, and go down to Cornwall? And as always with him, it was the best advice I've ever had. I ended up, um, I actually already bought a house down here. I had my little sort of bolt hole getaway for about 20 years. Back in the days of the Bensons, when your business was very, very good, I was able to do that. And... Really, it became, instead of having my weekend getaway, I decided, no, I'm going to do exactly what Dad said, move down to Cornwall and completely realign the business. So I got rid of doing all the stuff that was driving me mad, like corporate parties and corporate entertaining and taking out clients of people and telling them 20 times how to do it properly and watching them fail 20 times very badly. And I just kept the nucleus of good clients. Um, I had my consultancy work, which is great. I do a little bit of writing. But basically, I realigned my whole lifestyle to the Cornish way of life. Cornish down here, they've got a word called directly. And somebody asked me, yeah, what does that mean when you say you'll get to it directly? I said, well, Cornish word directly is a bit like the Spanish word manana, but without the same sense of urgency. 
That's probably a good summary of why I love Cornish life, I think. And at the heart of all that was this fundamental shift from fresh water to salt. So what then was the appeal there? Basically, if it's not wild and if it's not straight out the Atlantic, I don't really want to catch it. That's the one-line answer. The kind of padded answer is that I still actually do enjoy a bit of freshwater fishing because my life down here is a bit really between the ocean and the River Camel. Um, the River Camel is the most stunning river. And I, I say that because it's my home water and everybody will have a, a soft spot for their home river. But I, I genuinely do believe it. I mean, I fish, I'm privileged and lucky to fish all over the world. I fish some fantastic rivers. Snake River in Wyoming, um, Kusumo, the Finnish high mountain rivers in Finland where you catch wild Russian brown trout, all the Lapland rivers where you get these most amazing grayling and pretty much every extreme in between. But if I actually had to come back to it, and I sometimes get asked, you know, what's the best river in the world? You fish the Laxa in Iceland, that must be it. And I just don't hesitate. I say, no, best river in the world is the River Camel. It's a little stream, it's a little freestone, tumble-down river down in Cornwall. It's only 20-odd miles long. Starts up on the moors, it loses nearly 1,300 feet in less than 20 miles down to the sea. And I sometimes fish it literally from the source to the sea. Um, and you get these little wild brownies up on the moors, which you're taking on size 22s and anything stronger than two-pound breaking strain, and they're laughing at you. And then you fish the Canopy River, where you've got the beautiful mature brown trout and the occasional sea trout coming through. And in the autumn, we get a good salmon run. So I do enjoy the freshwater. But it's the point where the River Camel meets the ocean in the estuary here in Wedbridge, Padstow, down and further out to Stepper. That, to me, holds the really greatest appeal because sea fishing, saltwater fly fishing is absolutely... I mean, somebody very kindly said to me a few years back, saltwater fly fishing, having had a day out with you, is the most fun I've ever had without taking my clothes off. It's a slightly crude way of putting it, but I don't know any better way than spending a day on a beach, on an estuary, on the drop-offs where the light sand turns into dark blue water and you see the first bass coming in on the turn of the tide that just gets my blood flowing like nothing else ever has and it's the unpredictability of it phil it's the unpredictability of when you're out on the ocean when you go out take the boat out and you're going five miles out and you drop a bait down or you're spinning against the big rocks on the edge of an island you never know what's coming next you don't know what's going to grab hold first it could be what you expect to cash it could be a bass um, if you targeting pollock you might get something else you might get wrasse you might get cod who knows what you just don't know and you can spin and you can sometimes think yeah you're on the best bass mark that dad showed me 20 years ago it's been consistent for 20 years and you tell your friends and the people that you're taking out yeah you're going to get bass here first cast you get mackerel second cast you get pollock third cast you get wrasse and sea fishing has a lovely way of proving you wrong and it's not predictable and i love that i love not knowing what's going to happen next that, to me, is the bottom-line appeal of saltwater. With a company name like Kernow Game Fishing, Kernow being the Cornish dialect word for Cornwall, you're obviously very proud of your West Country roots. So what then do you make of the recent official minority status given to true Cornish people and to the Cornish language? <laughs> I think it's lovely, actually. I really do. I mean, there's a sort of hardcore of old boys down here who really think that the world ends at the River Tamar, the river that splits Cornwall from Devon and from the rest of the UK. There were some lovely one-liners going out earlier on this year when all the floods were on and we lost our railing. Um, you couldn't get on a train anywhere for about four months. It all got destroyed on the tracks. And all the news reports and all the big newspapers were all saying, you know, it's uh, cut off from the rest of the world. And we all said, no, actually, it's the rest of the world that's cut off from Cornwall. <laughs> that's the important side. 
Cornwall is special. It's different. It's kind of a remote, it's a rugged landscape. People tend to earn their living from the land or the sea in one way or the other. It might be through tourism, it might be through agriculture, it might be through fishing, but there is sort of a, a oneness with the land, if you like, to the Cornish people. You never really, unless you're actually born down here, I don't think you ever truly can say that you belong. I spoke to Rick Stein once about that, and he's been down here much longer than I have, and he said, no, not really. He said, yeah. You do Padstow, you do the, the May Day celebrations in Padstow, and everybody chats to you, and everybody talks to you, and you're a bit of a celebrity and whatever. So, but bottom of their hearts, back of their minds, they always say, not really Cornish, not proper Cornish. But I think you can sort of assimilate the countryside and you get to know people as long as you actually adopt their style of living rather than try and impose your style of living on it. I think you do much, much better. And I'll give you one other one-liner, and I, I can't help on this archive stuff with you, Phil. I can't help but quote my dad on so many occasions because he, he's just so many wise words. But um, I get asked when I do my evening talks and things in the winter, are you Cornish? And I say, no, it's a great source of regret to me. And I truly, truly wish that I was born in Cornwall because I have such an affinity with the place. So, but at least my dad actually said, although I wasn't born down here, I was at least conceived down here. And then he puts in brackets, because the car park at Travone was nowhere near as busy 50 years ago as it is now. We know already that you're an ex-international fly fisherman who switched from freshwater to salt. What we don't know yet is how you got to that point and the journey that took you there from Travern Car Park to the present day. <laughs> the first fly rod I ever got put in my hand, I was 10 years old. I'd done all the apprenticeships of dangling worms and drowning maggots and stuff like that. And we had a, back in Somerset, um, it was much, much quieter in those days, but we had a, a lot of nice little rivers there which you could fish next door to nothing. And Dad has ever introduced me to the, the wild brown trout on the River Chew. And they were great, and that was easy on a bit of a float. When I was at school, I developed my love of fly fishing rather than any other kind of fishing. At the tender age of 14, I was made chairman of the school fly fishing club, and we had a lovely stretch of the Midford Brook. And that was great learning ground, because they were pretty wild, pretty testing, pretty overstressed fish. And if you could catch them there on fly, you could uh, you learned a thing or two. But actually, my first ever fly rod was bought by my uncle from Sweden, and he... Used to come over every year, had a couple of months with us in the summer, and I always used to beg him to take me out fishing, and he and Dad used to go out on Chew and Blagden Lake. And they said, now, if you can cast a fly when I come back next year, then I'll buy you your first fly rod and I'll take you fishing. So I thought, that's a good challenge. So one year later he came back, and I said, Uncle, we're going down to the Bath and West Show today. Oh, yes, are we? He said, that's fine. And we went down to the Bath and West Show, and I was 14 years old, and I won the Junior Fly Accuracy Competition and bless his heart, true to his word, he took me straight into the hardy stand and bought me my very first fly rods. And of course, you know, with that kind of thing, you're absolutely hooked with it. Um, and I just developed it as soon as I left school, bought my first season ticket on Blagden and absolutely loved it. Developed a very, very deep love affair with Blagden actually as a lake because it's, uh, it's enigmatic. It's, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's really, really impossibly tough. Great, great learning ground. And then developed all my fly fishing skills, if that's the right way of putting it, with Dad and with all my other people who are now famous, people like Steve Pope, people like John Braithwaite, um, dear old Stan Pope, before he left, he took me under his wing for a while and he taught me the finer points of nymph fishing on Blackton. But um, so many of the characters, people like Danny McNichol, who used to run the Bell at Ubley, he was a former gilly on Bristol Water, he steered me in the direction of the dry fly. He was the first person, actually, that ever put a dry fly on for me on, on Blackton. 
And with all that as a, a schooling ground, with those great people helping, I actually formed my own version of the light line philosophy and the, the nymph fishing and following in the footsteps of people like Dr. Bell. I, I kind of worked it out for myself, really, which I think is probably the best way of learning in this lovely sport of ours. And I developed that over a period of years, and that really was, was all I ever wanted to do. And used to have a season ticket on Blagden. It cost me my marriage, but yeah, that's fishing for you. But I then got talked into this competition back in 1981. So he said, yeah, you'll really enjoy it. And, you know, like-minded people, it promotes the better things in fly fishing. And I was sceptical, I have to be honest. Initially, I didn't really want to do it. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And I have to say, I was, I was hooked right from the word go. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the camaraderie. I loved the slight edge of competition. Because being a sales and marketing man at heart, I think you probably are, by nature, competitive. But in terms of what it actually taught me, it was instantly obvious that you could actually promote the sport and you could push the sport forward in in competition world. The analogy that I always used to use then, and probably is true now, is Formula One racing. Things that are developed in Formula One this year will find their way into street road cars in probably about three or four years' time. It's not quite such a long time scale with fly fishing. You things that are being developed, techniques like the bung and the hang and all those kind of things, shipments, buzzers. All those things were kind of finding their way into the general anglers' vocabulary in probably less than a year because, thank goodness, the vast majority of competition anglers are happy to share their thoughts and their ideas. So that, again, was good for a long, long time. And as I said, 20-odd years fishing for England and a whole string of caps. But I felt at the end that it was getting a bit sour and getting a bit stale and the, the competition element was getting almost too much. People weren't sharing ideas within teams. People were quite openly cheating people were acting as individuals rather than as members of a team and certainly on the world championship stage you can't have that because if you get a team of five individuals you're never going to win what you've got to have is a team of five good individuals who are totally team focused and team oriented so i felt after having managed the team and having tried to put out something back into the sport for five years as team captain and manager basically it was time to to hang it up and let somebody else have a go and some of my mates, some of my old muckers tell me that I left it too early. But in my heart of hearts, when I come down here and I hear people going off to Czech Republic this year or wherever it is for the World Championships, and I think, yeah, they're lovely rivers over there. But my river here is a hell of a lot better. I'm glad I'm here with a couple of hours on the Campbell in the evening rather than in the hurly-burly and cut and thrust of competition. I have to say that the probably that period of, what is this now, 10 years ago now, in the early noughties when... I think the competition was losing its way. Competition fly fishing was certainly losing its way. It was going down a, a darker path. I think they've probably turned the corner on that now. I think there's a, a new structure in Angling Trust to getting more involved in the competition side of things. And I think there's a, I think there's some chance that we can rekindle the, the proper ethos of competition fly fishing. Certainly some of the encouraging signs are there. But do I miss it? Not very much. I've got my new style of fishing down here now and saltwater fly on the beach. I'm just developing a whole new range of flies at the moment with my good friends at Turrells. I'm going to bring a whole new range of sandal fly patterns out during the course of this year. I'm doing the same up on the river. I've got my own version of what river flies should be, what river nymphing should be, and what river dry flies should be. And it's exciting and it's a challenge. And even with my ever-increasing number of grey hairs, I still get that buzz. Um, I get a buzz when I, I, I make a fly that works for the first time. I get a buzz when I find a method that works on the beach, which I didn't think would work. I get a real buzz when I pioneer things like the very, very light-line philosophy of boat fishing on the sea. There's such a, 
a kind of an ingrained ethos, if you like, in sea boat fishing, that you've got to have a big heavy boat rod and you've got to use the drop shots and they, nobody seems to think about uptiding. It has to be done the old-fashioned way. Well, I actually uptied a live sand eel with a floating fly line. And I can promise you it's a damn sight more effective than the old method and the new LRF, the light rock fishing, and the new ultralight spin and bait rods that people are using. Those are fantastic. And you've just basically got to teach people and show people that by using that, you can, not only do you catch just as many, if not more fish, but you have a hell of a sight more fun doing it as well. So it's still pioneering. I'm still trying to push the, the boundaries forward a little bit and do my little bit to promote the sport. And I just absolutely am still in love with it. I think back 10 years ago when competition fishing was going badly, I almost got to the point there where because fishing was my business, I almost lost my love of the sport. And that does sometimes happen. You find that in other fields when people who turn their love in life into a business, you tend to lose your love in life. And that's a sort of got a bit of an inevitability about it. But in terms of, of where I am now with it and what I do now, when I wake up in the morning and it's a question, if I'm not busy, obviously, but if I wake up in the morning and it's a choice between the river or the estuary or the beach or the boat, I don't reckon that's a bad choice to have to make it up at six in the morning. The day that I use lose that buzz, that little sort of pit of excitement at the bottom of your tummy when you're actually going to start a day's fishing or when you're tackling up, when I'm well past the, the the mark of 60 now, and I actually got out the other day, and it was such a good day on the beach. The bass were all over the place. I actually found myself shaking, <laughs> my hand shaking as I was tying on the fly. I thought, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You still get that much sense of anticipation, that much feel for the sport. That's something that you can't do probably in any other, certainly not many other sports anyway. Footballers have a kind of a, a shelf life of about 10 years at most, and certainly athletics, you kind of be regarded as old when you're 40 but fishing is a sport for all generations all ages from 8 to 80 and i think that is a great great thing sticking with the competition scene for just a little while longer fishing at international level though not for everybody is nonetheless a level of achievement that a lot of anglers whether they admit it or they don't would aspire to what most probably don't realise is that backing up the glory is a lot of dedication and hard work, initially to get there, then later to maintain your place. So for the benefit of those contemplating an international career, explain to us the commitment levels required. If you're going to win at international level, certainly at world championship level, you've got to be absolutely 1,000% committed. There is no way you could possibly go into the sport with any kind of half-heartedness. You, you've got to be totally into it and totally committed with it. I think if you get to world championship level, by definition, you've already fished for England in the home internationals at least two or three times. You're up there with the cream of the cream. Back in my day, there were something like two and a half thousand people that used to enter every year into the eliminators just to get into the 14-man team on the home international. Beyond that, there's only five people in the world championship squad. So, I mean, you are essentially the cream of the cream. Sorry, that sounds a bit immodest, but you are. And you have to eat, sleep, live, breathe, think, fishing from the minute you get up until the minute you go to bed. And to give you an idea, I mean, there's a simple level of it. I mean, we go to, when I was team captain and manager, we get some fairly interesting places, some very challenging rivers in Czech Republic, Poland, France, and in Lapland as well. And boys used to say, well, okay, what do we do? What flies do we need? I said, I don't want anybody to bring a great big fly box with them. You can bring 20 patterns, 25 patterns, staples that we know we're going to need. The rest of it we'll do when we get there. And you have to be that disciplined. You have to get to the river. You have to look at the fly life. You have to see what the river conditions are like, see what's living there, see what the hatches are, go back in the evening, 
it's not a question of going out and getting on the drinks every evening or get on the wine. I mean, that is a part of it, obviously, when it's fun. But the practice on the build-up, you've got to give two weeks of your life every day, every evening, every night, tying flies, working up patterns, working up killing patterns, thinking of little nuances of tackle technique, fly that nobody else has got. That's how committed you have to be. I'll give you one when, I mean, one of my good friends, long-time friends, John Paulson and I were in world team together. He was tying flies at four o'clock in the morning because he'd found a fly pattern which was absolutely red hot and nobody else had got. And he tied flies for all five team members at four o'clock in the morning through to seven o'clock in the morning when we went fishing. That's commitment. That's a, an, an idea of the level of commitment you have to have. Beyond that, I mean, for me, and this sounds a bit pious, but it's true. I mean, I, I actually felt all the way through my career that I was actually an ambassador for England and representing England on the international stage. For that, I I make no apology. I mean, I do I do genuinely feel, and some of the people that have got the, the England cap at the moment, in my view, don't deserve it because they are not good ambassadors for English fly fishing. There's an element of selfishness in some departments. There's an element of win at all costs, and there's an element that fishing is the only thing that matters. It's not. When you're selected to represent your country in any sport, you are representing your country, not just in that sport, but in how you conduct yourself and in the things that you do. And I'm very proud to say my Christmas card list um, this last year, my Christmas card list went out to 220 people and over a 100 of those were international Christmas cards. I've got friends in literally every country around the world. Friendships have developed over the course of competition fishing and over representing your country as well. So people who are doing my job, team captains and manager in Canada, Czech Republic, France, they're all good friends, genuinely good friends. And that, I think, is part and parcel of the game. But if you're not committed, if you're not 100% into the sport, then don't even think about entering at top level because you won't enjoy it. Again, for people with international aspirations, how does the recognition and selection process work? Yeah, recognition is, I mean, yeah, obviously it's part of it. And then there's quite a few people who have developed their fishing careers having come through competition world. And you, yeah, you do. You get famous, you get well-known. People want to hear your views. They want to hear what you've got to say in terms of articles and, and writing. But um, if you haven't got a business brain, again, don't bother because it's one thing winning competitions. It's another thing entirely doing something with that fame. And if you've got a business brain on your head, I mean, 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago, before I had my own business, I was actually working for a famous grouse with a whiskey company. Great, great company. And I gave that job up. I gave up a fantastic job there with a big salary, company cars, and all the trimmings that went with it because I thought it was time to try and develop my own company, my own business. And I went, I'm not entirely sure how right the figures are, but in very, very rough terms, I went from earning about 40 grand a year at Famous Crash to less than 10 grand in my first year as a self-employed person. I thought, what have I done? But you have to develop that and you have to work up different things. And I worked up you know, a bit of corporate work and a bit of writing and then wrote a couple more books. And yeah, you, yeah, you know, I ended up making a living. You're never going to get stinking rich in the tackle trade. I don't think anybody that I know of has ever made a huge amount of money from the tackle trade. Even people that own tackle businesses, um, really, they don't do it because they want to become multimillionaires. I think they do it because it's an extension of the sport and it's an extension of their commitment to the sport. Actually, when I said recognition, I was thinking more in terms of ability for consideration in the team. Oh, that, that's the straightforward elimination process. And in the early days, you simply enter a regional competition first of all uh, if you get through the regional competition you get through to the national finals that's usually held with 100 people river and lake 
if you get into top 10, top 15, then you get through to the home international squads. If you then have a really, really consistent record, you might be then up for selection for the World Championship squad. But there it becomes a little bit more, um, almost use the word questionable then, so I'll keep it. Yeah, it does become questionable because at that stage, up until then, it's been a question of simple results, which decides who, who gets into the team. But at World Championship level, obviously there are other factors that have to come into it. There's no point, for instance, in choosing somebody who's a cracking river angler if all the five venues on the World Championship are going to be held on lakes. So you have to choose the right people for the right venues. And you have to choose the right people with the right aptitude as well. I would take it one stage further than that. And I used to have fairly major fallings out with some of the uh, selectors in the, the old days. But I think you've got to go beyond the fishing and pick five people who are going to really interact, work together, get on well together, become proactive together, feed off each other and feed into each other. In other words, if you've got somebody who's brilliant on fly tying nymphs for a river... You can then share his ideas, giving him your patterns on the still water. You you spread the, the talents and you spread the load. So, yeah, I think the, the in terms of the recognition, you, you've got to be a, a red-hot angler. You've got to be, you have the aptitude for the team, but you've got to be a very, very good team member as well. And out of all your selections and performances, which one stands out above all of us and why? Oh, so many. I think probably, this is going back, must be 18 years, there was a World Championships in Norway, and each World Championship is held over five sessions, so you get maybe three rivers, two lake, or vice versa, or whatever, four, sometimes four rivers, one lake. But in, in Norway, one of the five venues was a lake which was just impossible. There were hardly any fish in it, it had been overfished by the locals for God knows how long, and there just weren't any fish coming out of it. You just had to work up a strategy which would avoid a blank. Over the period of the three days of the competition, five sessions on this lake, there were three trout taken by 120 anglers. That's how tough it was. And they just worked up a policy. I knew the fish were likely to be holding. There was a bit of a wind blowing. They were likely to be holding in the only little bit of shallow water that was there, but on the edge of a, a stony drop-off. And I just persuaded my boat partner that we should totally focus our entire three-hour session on that 100 yards of water and literally with five minutes before the gun when I and my boat partner were completely blank and we were both looking at maximum figures against us for the team I managed to get a fish just saw something behind a rock don't know what it was instinct intuition I don't know put the fly in the right place at the right time and got this one crucially vital fish and Jeff Clarkson who was the team manager was sitting in the car park waiting for us to come back in and out of the 23 anglers in the section, I was the only one that caught that single fish. And his, I kept my face as dark as I could so that he thought we'd blanked as well. And then I just held up one finger in front of him and his face just absolutely transformed in that moment. And I thought, yeah, that's that's everything that World Championship fishing should be about. So that was a pretty memorable day. I got an awful lot of beer bought me that evening. <laughs> On your website, you state that you make no apology for saying that your services are not for novices or beginners. What you offer is experience guiding for wild fish in immaculate surroundings across a wide range of geographical settings. Yes, I mean, the the first bit first, the, in terms of um, I make no pretensions to be a casting instructor. I never have. Um, an awful lot of people these days are being persuaded, cajoled, sometimes even bullied into taking qualifications. 
most of which, frankly, they don't need, and an awful lot of which, I have to say, also are given by people with a lot less ability than the people they're trying to teach. But no, I've never got casting instruction. I don't ever want to have a casting instruction. Frankly, I haven't got the patience to teach people how to cast a fly. If you want to come out on one of my days, you're going to be fishing for world fish, difficult conditions. You're going to know absolutely everything there is to know about fishing before you come. If you want to start learning about how to cast, if you want to start learning in watercraft, if you want to start learning about things like that, do that before you have a day out on on my kind of fishing because you'll end up being frustrated by it and you won't enjoy it. If you can got the basics of casting, if you're a good caster, if you've got good knowledge of basic fishing techniques and watercraft, then what I can do is to show you how to put that into practice on the beach and catch things like wild bass and garfish and whatever. That way you'll enjoy it. In terms of the, the variety of the locations, I mean, I'm based here on the River Camel, and as we've already said, I've got a massive love affair with the River Camel and the system, literally from the source, where it's no more than five feet, six feet wide, and a, a little tiny three-inch deep shimmering crystal clear pool right the way through where it goes through to the peat stain, where it picks up a little bit of peat stain on its journey downstream, and then further then still down into the estuary areas where you can get all sorts of things, get bream coming in during the summer sometimes. And then beyond that, still out beyond the sandbars and beyond the drop-offs where you're actually fishing the Atlantic Ocean. And I've had a, a lovely situation with somebody who said the other day, we're sitting on a, or standing on a sandbar. And I said, isn't it nice to think that you can actually fish downwind, you can actually turn your body 180 degrees, and you're fishing out across the other side of the sandbar. One minute you're fishing what's left of the river, and the next minute you're fishing the Atlantic Ocean. And he said, how cool is that? I said, yeah, it is. It's a bit special. I think people, people, I love it when people come down and really appreciate it. I love it when people come down and appreciate the angling environment. And if they're coming down to get sport, of course, they're coming down to catch fish. Yes, who doesn't want to catch fish? But at the same token, I, I love it when people actually come up on the river and they do what I do so often, which is just simply sit down, put a cup of coffee, take out a can of beer, and they just look and they get lost in the river and they get lost in the environment and... I love it when people do that. I love it when they take time to notice the fact that there's dippers on the rocks or you know, if they're quiet enough and a kingfisher will come by or if they'll watch the wagtails taking insects and feeding the young like they are at the moment on the river. Those, to me, are the things that make fishing. I mean, they're not technically fishing, but they are part of what makes fishing so special. And I like it when clients do that. I haven't got a huge client base at the moment, but most of them I repeat and a lot of them are coming back year on year and when they come down here on holidays, so I see them on a fairly regular basis and... They just do the same. They they live busy lives, they live stressful lives, and they live high-pressure, high-stress business occupations. I think they come down for wild fishing just for the atmosphere of it. And I think Cornwall gives them that like no other place. Um, sometimes I fish the south coast of Cornwall, sometimes the south coast of Devon, but they're just that little bit softer. I've got this affinity with the north coast of Cornwall, which is rugged. It's all about cliffs, it's all about granite, it's all about wild surroundings. And it's just got that little bit more of a, a wilderness factor about it. And whilst it's impossible in this lovely country of ours, this massively overpopulated, beautiful England of ours at the moment, to find genuine wilderness anymore, I think when you're up on the top of the moors, up on the top of Bodmin Moor, and you're leaving the off-road vehicle as far as you can possibly drive it, and then you're walking for two hours, and you're a long, long way from even the nearest farm track, and there's no intrusion, there's no noise, there's no motors, there's no music, there's no tourists, there's no nothing. You're in an unkempt river environment. You're not like on the River Test where it's beautiful as it is, but it's all manicured and it's all mown so that the people don't get their feet wet when they walk it. 
up on the top of the camel, it's not touched. And there's places up there which haven't seen an angler for the last three or four years. The brambles may scratch and the nettles may sting, but it's a special, special place. What then, if any, are the specific challenges that freshwater anglers coming into fly fishing at sea really need to be aware of? I think, basically, the first one I'd say to that was treat it with a massive amount of respect, because when you're on the river, if things go wrong, the worst thing you do, you get back in the car, or you pick up the phone, or somebody's going to come and help you. When you're fishing the Atlantic Ocean, um, you have to treat it with respect, and it's, uh, it's an unpredictable environment, things happen quickly there, waves come out of nowhere, so it's instantly, first, first answer to that question is, treat it with a whole lot of respect. Then you just need to forget all your preconceptions that you've learned on, on freshwater. People say to me, what are the rise forms? I go, well, actually, there aren't any. What you're looking for on a bass is where a bass is feeding. So if you're in six feet of water, five feet of water, you're not actually going to see a proper head and tail like you would on a trout. And more importantly, if a, if a trout on a river head and tails, he's pretty sure that he's going to be going back on station and he lives in that same place. So you give it an hour and you'll probably see him rise again. If you see a bass move in any way at all, he's travelling. Uh, they're never in the same place. They're, they're nomadic. They're moving all the time. To give you an idea on that, when you're out on the sandbars and the tide's coming in at four or five knots, the bass are coming in with the tide and they're doing another four, five, six, ten knots on their own. They're going by you so fast. You've got to have one, maybe two chucks at the very, very most. So I teach people how to spot fish. I teach people the signs of fish, where the little flattening on the surface of the water that might look like nothing at all, just a bit of ripple going the wrong way, a little bit of, sort of slight underwater disturbance, a bit of puff of sand which shouldn't be there for any other reason other than it's a bass feeding. Um, we teach people how to spot fish. We teach people how to see where they're moving, see how they're moving, see where they're likely to move, how to match up the weather with the tides, um, People say, what's the most important piece of equipment when you're going, you know, do I need a new rod? Do I need a different rod? And I say, well, actually, most important piece of equipment for saltwater fly fishing is the tide tables. Go into the nearest news agent, spend pound eighty, and get yourself a copy of the tide tables. That is absolutely the most important piece of equipment because everything is tide-driven first, weather-driven second, and available food-driven third. So it's really about when, where, and how, and that's what I try and teach people. Given a free hand, what would be your favoured type of location and species of choice? Type of location? Yeah, I mean, I have to say beach. Of all the river, I, I love the beach and the drop-offs festival. Again, it's one of those secret marks, really. I've shown so many people now, it's no longer a secret, but there's a beautiful beach right at the mouth of the Camel Estuary, which uh, is huge, open expanse of sand. To the casual observer, when I actually first take them there, they think, God, it's huge. It's like two and a half square miles of sand. And they say, yeah, it is. It's dramatic. But when you actually teach them how to look at it with a, a watercraft hat on, then actually you can break it down. And so you say, OK, fine, it's two and a half square miles of sand, but there's the drop-off. This is the way the tide's flowing. That's what's going to be bringing the food in. So drop-offs, you start. Then you start showing them how to spot rocks, which are worth looking for. Like top of the tide, top of the beach, the rocks have got nothing on them. There's no barnacles, there's no weed, there's no nothing. So whilst it might give you a very good casting platform, there's nothing there. So there's no point in fishing there. You then show them the rocks down at the bottom of the tide, at the low tide mark, where it's tumbled up stones and there's loads of seaweed and there's loads of rack and kelp. And there's no end of places for fish to hide and bait items, food items to hide. That's where the peeler crabs are going to be. This is where the sand eels come in. I love the beach. 
I love going out in the boat. I love being in the estuary boat. I love drifting, almost lockstyle. We do lockstyle on the top of the estuary here. But for one, if I had to do one only day, if I had one only day of season when I was allowed to go out, I'd go down to my favourite beach. I'd wet wade it with shorts on, no waders, because if you've got waders on, you can't feel the temperature change. That's really crucial. When you're fishing on the beach, you really got to notice where the water temperature changes, which can be really quite dramatic. And that actually triggers how the mullet move in and how the bass move in as well. But for me, on a big open beach with minimal tackle, just a, a little lanyard around my neck with a little spare, a couple of spare flies, some spare leader material, some snips, some Polaroid sunglasses, and that's it, and just a fly rod. And you're free, you've got that wonderful sense of freedom where you're not cluttered down with too much gear. You can walk, you can wet wade, sometimes you're up to your ankles, sometimes you're up to your knees, sometimes you're up to your chest. Um, had a lovely situation a couple of years back where it was the clouds, a whole series of little sandbars that come in and there's so many fish around and he said, oh, we're going to waste time if we have to walk all the way back on these sandbars. I said, well, let's do it the old-fashioned way then. So we just simply waded up to our necks onto the next sandbar and we were giggling like children and he said, yeah, it's so fun. It's just elemental. And it really is. It's a one-to-one with the fish, with the ocean, with that environment. Beach fishing for me ticks every box. I've saltwater fly fish myself, both here in the UK and over in America, and while I don't profess to have any particular level of expertise, I do appreciate both the challenge and the specific tackle requirements, which are far more than simply using bigger flies in the stepped-up fly outfit. So for the benefit of anyone out there wanting to give it a try for themselves, give us your recommendations in terms of tackle. The first one is to dispel the myth that it's expensive and that you need a whole new range of tackle. Your normal reservoir track tackle will serve you perfectly well on the beach and for 90% of most saltwater fly fishing situations you can use your regular freshwater gear. As long as you remember to give it all a thorough, and I do mean thorough, wash off afterwards, particularly the reels, take the reels apart, rinse everything through freshwater, they'll be none the worse for the experience. And certainly if you're just starting saltwater fishing or if you're going to be in saltwater fishing for the first time and you're not sure if you're going to be doing a lot of it, I wouldn't invest in a whole load of specialist saltwater fishing gear. If you find that you love it and if you find that yeah, it's going to become an all-consuming passion, which I, I warn you it will, then you need to look at some specialist gear. But for the moment, and for certainly for the beginner and the newcomer, I would use your normal trout gear. On the beach, I'm using floating line... 60% of the time, intermediate lines 30% of the time, and occasionally other lines for the last 10%. If you're on fishing on a very deep drop-off and you're on the edge of the, the tidal channel and you need to get down sometimes, then you have to use a sinking line. But for me, the, the fun of beach fishing is the schoolies. I love catching the schoolies on a floating fly line. I use a five-weight. I mean, I'm a little bit extreme because I'm a bit locked into the, the light line philosophy. But I do love using a, a lightweight, five-weight outfit. Nine-foot, five-weight outfit is perfect for, for stalking bass as well. In terms of general bass fishing on the beach, being realistic, uh, nine-foot, six rod for a, anything six, seven, or maybe an eight. You don't need the heavy saltwater gear. You see a lot of people that go to destination fishing. They go catch bonefish or they go to the Maldives or the Seychelles or whatever. And they expect to be using a nine foot ten weight. I say, no, leave that in the car. Try my lightweight stuff. You'll have a lot more fun and you'll have a lot more uh, pleasure using it. A little bit of respect for the quarry as well, because when you're catching a lot of schooly bass, you, you know, you don't need the heavy gear. You want to enjoy them. And a, a six or a five weight line is the way to do that. 
And except that when you're stalking in the evenings, I mean, whole new can of worms all together. We go out there in the summer to catch a, a lot of fish on the beach and have a lot of fun. We catch 10, 12, 15 sometimes in a day. If you want to catch a big specimen bass, you've got to accept that they're solitary. You've got to accept that they're hard to catch and you've got to treat them with a lot more respect than you would the humble schoolie. So stalking is definitely a nine foot five weight for me. It's about walking, wading near the rocks, standing absolutely still in the water, sometimes for an hour until you just get that first tiny little telltale sign of when there's a bass around. And then you try and lay your ambush for it. And you'll hear people talking about a forward lead when they're on still water trout situations. Well, if I was on a, a nice drift in a lock-style boat, drifting down on a moving fish, I'd try and lay my flies probably about five or six feet in front of him. Give yourself time to straighten the leader, settle everything down. When you're fishing for bass, your forward lead goes up to about 20 feet because you've got to lay it down the tiniest line flash, the slightest hint of bad presentation, and you're going to spook the fish. Um, so cast way out in front of it, give yourself time to lay the ambush, straighten the leader out, get everything ready, get the fly into the appropriate depth, all those kind of things. So basically the tackle's pretty much the same. Breaking strain on leaders, I'm using a two-fly cast most of the time because it definitely increases the trigger factor on bass. Two flies, probably eight, ten feet apart, and then another five, six feet of leader up to your butt rig or to your fly line, whichever way you like to use it. But there's no mystery. There's no mystique about it. There's no sort of magical mystery tackle that you need to go and buy. The only thing you do obviously have to consider is the flies because the flies are completely different. Most of the flies we use represent bait fish in one form or another. And the biggest bait fish by a million miles is the sand eel. The sand eel comes in three fairly distinct forms. A lot of people don't know this, but um, early on in the season, you get these what we call the little bootlace sand eels, the little dark ones, about three inches long, very thin, skinny things. Then as the summer progresses, you get the normal sand eels, if you like, which are about more like six inches long, five, six inches, and about a quarter of an inch thick. They're the sort of the staple diet of pretty much everything that uh, uses the ocean. And then you also get the giant sand eel, which is called the lance. And they can be, you know, they can be up to two foot long. We've actually been caught some, what the boatman calls the snake lance this year, which are nearly two foot long and about an inch thick. They're almost too big even for the biggest bass, but they are the most amazing things. But, um, your fly tying is geared realistically to representing the smaller lance, the regular sand eels and the bootlace sand eels. So they're essentially their bait fish imitations. Um, you can tie flies that imitate crabs and occasionally here on the camel we get a big proliferation of floating crabs in the summer and that's good fun to represent occasionally you'll see a, a bass take a floating crab just like a trout would take a dry fly on still water but for the vast majority of the time you're putting life into the flies it's not the fly it's what you do with it it's how you make it move again this almost goes back to the competition days and people say oh yeah the fly is the all-important thing actually it's not neither is the the rod to cast the line out the clever stuff is done with the left hand with the retrieve hand it's what you do with your left hand on the fly line that makes the fly move in the water. That's the clever bit. You can be the best fly tire in the world, but if you can't make it move in the water, you're wasting your time. It's not the fly, it's the life you put into it. It's making the saltwater fish believe that that little creation on the end of your leader is a living thing. If you can do that, you're home and dry. Do you have any tips on achieving distance and depth, or dealing, say, with tides or sea breezes? Distance is totally governed by your ability as a caster. And this sounds like it's a, a sort of a one-liner soundbite, really, but I always encourage my friends and my guests, always cast as far as you can comfortably cast and gaining good turnover and good presentation. I'd much rather see somebody cast 15 yards properly with good presentation 
and good clean turnover than somebody struggle all day to just to get those extra three or four meters and end up with bad presentation because it's going to cripple your fishing. Cast as far as you can with comfortable turnover and good presentation. That's the key thing. In terms of the tides, it varies from location to location. Here on my estuary in the Camel, then there's definitely, I have a, a fondness for the low tide. Two hours either side of low tide. They open up the, the options really because low tide here on our estuary exposes the rocks and the weed beds and the kelp beds and the drop-offs and you get to the point where the rocks meet the sand. That's the important thing. Again, on distance, you know, people come down, you see them doing it, and they go to the edge of the rocks, they go to the very edge of the ocean, they wade as far as they possibly can, and then they start casting as far as they possibly can. What they're doing, they're ignoring the fact that the fish aren't out there, the fish are on the edge, the fish are where the rocks meet the sand. Fish aren't going to be hunting in wide open spaces of sand where there's nothing, they're going to be hunting around the rocks where the bait fish are. I mean, the exception to that, obviously, is on the, the drop-offs and out on the beaches where the sand deals are in. But most of the time, people end up having casting competitions with themselves. They're wasting energy and they're wasting their time. Think like a bass. Think like a fish. Think about where the food items are. That's where the bass will be. With hindsight now, any regrets at leaving both the international and the freshwater scene? The simple bottom line is that when I set myself up as a fly fishing consultant, it's really got a lovely ring to it, but I didn't actually have the faintest idea about what it was going to involve. I basically turned a skill in the sport into a business, and I kind of learned it all as I went along, really. But it was very obvious right from the word go that, you know, just doing a few corporate days, you're never going to make much money doing that. You can write books, but again, you don't make any money writing books these days. Writing articles, people think because you're famous and you're writing articles and you're in Trout and Salmon every week that you're a rich man. Believe me, you don't get rich writing articles for the UK uh, magazines. It doesn't happen. What you've got to do really, or what I did anyway, is to try and put a whole package together whereby the, the sum of the whole makes a sensible living. So with a bit of writing, with a bit of consultancy, it was very obvious that you know, when you won a few English nationals and you've, you've won a couple of world championships, you're a, a desirable commodity as far as the tackle trade are concerned. And very early on, I got uh, into bed with Hardy, probably the best iconic British brand of all. And I'm very fortunate to have had 20-odd years with them. Sadly, Hardy's just been bought out by Pure Fishing, American Concern. And, and I'm sure it'll be for the good of the brand. But to me, it was a, it was a time to, to make a change. I'd, I'd almost become too locked into one consultancy. And I wanted to be a bit more flexible. And so I've actually, this year, been like a breath of fresh air on the business. I'm, I'm working with Airflow, BVG, which is undoubtedly the best fly line maker in the world. I mean, they make lines for most of the other companies anyway. They are so far out in the front of the technology on fly lines as to be off the scale, really. And I'm thoroughly enjoying working with them. We've just finished a video showing, hopefully people have enjoyed it, showing them how to tackle small still waters. But one day I could be doing that. One day I could be looking at fly line development with them. Then I'm looking at things like the CLA Game Fair, which is a very major consultancy for me now. The Game Fair really is, is a big challenge because for recent years, the fishing village has been going downhill. That's not just my view. That's the, the view of most people in the tackle trade. And it's been almost like a neglected area of the Game Fair. The new areas like the food village and the off-roads, 4x4s, Gunmaker's Row has gone from strength to strength. And they've almost kind of fishing was almost like the forgotten sport. I want to try and turn that around, and so I'm doing a, a lot of work with the CLA this year. We're redeveloping the fishing area, revamping the demonstration programs, focusing on achievable fishing. One of my hobby horses really is the fact that the average age of anglers in this country is way too old. 
depending on whose statistics you believe, but the average age of anglers in England now is probably around the 45 to 50 mark, which is terrible, because where's the next generation coming from? So most of the major initiatives we're promoting at the Game Fair are all about bringing youngsters in, bringing newcomers in, and physically helping the next generation of anglers. So I'm getting a lot of pleasure from that. I'm certainly getting a lot of pleasure from doing fly tying again, which I'd almost forgotten about in my busy, busy life. And I've got a bit of work with Turrells, another old traditional English fly tying fly materials company, developing new ranges of flies with them, which is great fun. And that, plus my guiding, just about earns me a cross, I'm pleased to say. Plenty of optimism for the future, then. I'm always optimistic, Phil. My, um, I'm one of those people that the cup is always half full, never half empty for me, despite my advancing years. The one thing I hate, my, my only real hate in life is growing older, because there's so much still to do, and I kind of have this fear of old age, if you like, so I'm keeping myself young, I keep myself reasonably fit. I still drink too much wine, but to counteract that, I try and walk two, two and a half, three miles every day. And I'm just, yeah, I do. I love life. I love life in Cornwall. I, I love the clean air and the clean sea down here. I love fishing in salt water. Like, I can't tell you how good it is. And if I can transfer my enthusiasm to newcomers to the game, and certainly if I can help youngsters get started in the game, it sounds a bit pious, but I'm genuinely enjoying it. And there's so much still to do. Much of your last answer sounds like a summary of me. <laughs> Loves fishing, loves wine, hates growing old. But I think you've also touched on a very valid point there with regards to new blood coming into fishing generally. Something of a reoccurring theme, unfortunately, through quite a few of the interviews I've done recently. Fishing, it seems, needs to find ways of competing with video games. Otherwise, we could be the last generation to enjoy what the British countryside and coastline has to offer, which would be a great shame. Many thanks then to Chris Ogborn for reminding us of that fact and for painting a picture of fly fishing which more and more people are now starting to waken up to. 